Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this um, uh, time and opportunity to open your words um, and take a bite from it. Um, please, Lord, speak to this congregation in spite of me so that your word may shine forth, not your servants. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Mark chapter 3. And I'm going to go through many chapters and pick certain scriptures. So we're going to end up in chapter 11. Mark chapter 3. You can see the title, Mark's Sandwiches. Um, it's actually a technical word. A sandwich has two buns and the meat in the middle. Okay? And a more formal word for it is a chiastic structure or a chiasm, where there's an idea inside two ideas that are related to each other. But the technical, actually, word for this in the Gospel of Mark are sandwiches. So we want to take a bite from God's word. Um, basically, nine times in this Gospel, Mark begins a story... And then he interrupts this story by inserting a second story in the middle, into it. And then he continues the first story. So two stories, one over here and one inserted right in the middle. Okay, so that's what I, I mean by a sandwich. So the definition, sandwiches are literary conventions, if you will, with a theological purpose. There is a reason why Mark does that. Um, you, we're going to see that the middle, the meat, the inside of the sandwich, holds the theological key to understand the edges. Okay? And these sandwiches have different themes. There's nine of them in the gospel. Some of the themes are like faith, discipleship, bearing witness, um, the dangers of apostasy, and so on. So the first sandwich, we find it in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. The, the buns, the top and the bottom, Jesus is in a house surrounded by a crowd. Okay? The top is verses 20 and 21. Let me read those for you. Mark chapter 3, 20. It says, And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends, or his acquaintances, the people around him, heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. Can you imagine? For they said he is beside himself. Then Mark interrupts this story. But let, let me read verses 31 to 35, where he goes back to this same story. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without sent unto him, calling him. They're looking for him. They're calling him. Here, come, come here. They, they don't want him to start speaking again. They, don't, they want him out. Just like in verse 21, they want to lay hold on him. They want to control him. See, they said he's beside himself. Some people didn't like his teaching. What did Jesus tell them in verse 33? Who is my mother or my brethren? He looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, the ones who are close to me, the ones who want to come to me. Not the outsiders, 
the, the ones who are close, inside, the insiders. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. What's the will of God for them at that time? To be close to Jesus, to listen to his teaching. Right? The will of God is always for you to be close to Jesus. Be part of his circle, his inner circle, not from the outside. Okay? Use Jesus of having a devil. Let's see the meat inside so outside the bonds, they want to control Jesus. They were looking for him. They want him out. The inside, verse 22, the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, he has a devil. And by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. He casts demons out by the power of Satan. They're accusing him. In verse 27, it says, Jesus told them, of course, Jesus, how, how can Satan cast out Satan? If, a kingdom, if the kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Verse 27, no man can enter into a strong man's house, that's Satan, and spoil his goods, except he will first bind, that's the word I want you to focus on, bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. So verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the Son of Man. And we're going to explain this. And the blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. That's the key, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. He has a devil. He has Beelzebub under him. We see in verse 27 that Jesus is able to bind the strong man, Satan. Jesus is able to go in his house, bind him, and then spoil his goods. The people who belong to Satan, Jesus can redeem them. The edges, they want to bind Jesus. They want to control Jesus. They said he's beside himself. They're looking for him, calling him out. In the middle, Jesus is the one who binds even Satan. So the middle is the key to understanding the edges, what's happening. Basically, the authority of Jesus binds even Satan. But Jesus' followers must not and cannot bind him. Some people are outside, some people are inside, as we saw. The insiders are his mother and his brothers, not the outsiders. Now, the blasphemy, the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. Um, just a word on this because it's misunderstood. There is such a thing as an unforgiven sin. Can, can the blood of Christ not forgive a certain sin? What is this sin? This sin is blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. What did they say in verse 22? He has Beelzebub. He is doing his miracles by the power of Satan. The spirit of Satan is inside him. We know who, spirit, whose spirit is inside Jesus, the Holy Ghost. So they're accusing the Holy Ghost of being Satan. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he has God's spirit. If you don't believe that God, uh, Jesus is God's Son, then without faith you don't have salvation. That's what it means. 
if you just put two and two together, it's not that hard. They accused him of having Beelzebub inside him. We know he has the Holy Ghost inside him. So he's telling them, you don't blaspheme against the Holy Ghost. That's unforgiven. That's the, the sin of unbelief. And in, then in verse 30, it says, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. So obviously, if you believe, you're not committing this sin. And you are going to be forgiven because where it is. The second sandwich, the parable of the sower, Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Jesus speaks the parable. That's the, the bun. And then he speaks something else. And then he gives the explanation of the parable. So the parable and the explanation are interrupted by a few verses in the middle. These verses are the key to understand the parable. So the parable of the sower, Jesus says in verse 3, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. I won't read the whole thing, but as he sowed, uh, some, some fell by the wayside. Verse 4, verse 5, some fell on the stony ground. Uh, some fell among thorns, verse 7. And then, verse 8, other fell on good ground and yielded fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some 30, some 60, and some 100. Understand that um, in that culture, in an agrarian culture like that, a hundredfold of fruit is a lot of increase. It's, it's miraculous to have a hundredfold increase. And Jesus is saying, you can have that. Who can have that? The, the seeds who fell on the good ground. My question is, how can we be the seed that fell on the good ground? How can we be that example? How can we uh, spring forth, um, yield fruit, some 30, some 60, and some 100? How can we be that? The explanation, or the, the, um, yeah, the explanation of the parable is in verse 14 to 20. In verse 14, it says, The sower soweth the word. They that are by the wayside, he explains, who are these? Who are the ones on the stony ground? Um, basically, the ones who, um, when affliction or persecution ariseth, the, uh, you know, they fall away. The ones um, who are uh, among the thorns, the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things, they choke the word. But these that are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. That's the explanation of their parable. Okay, so my question, how can I be part of that group? The explanation didn't tell me. How can I be part of that group? The middle of the sandwich is the key to understanding the edges. Okay, the middle, verses 10 to 13, Jesus is giving private instructions about the mystery of the kingdom of God. Let me read them. Verses 9, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, see, he's not speaking to the public now. When he was alone, after he spoke that parable, they that were about him with the twelve asked, asked, 
of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, the outsiders, all these things are done in parables. That seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven. So the clue of receiving what Jesus says here, the mystery of God, is to come close to Jesus. Jesus said the parable, then he went alone. It says here that 12 came to him and others came to him, and then they asked him. The, their closer ones, the ones who actually care to be close to him, to understand the parable. They came closer to him, and then they asked him, and he explained the parable. But he told them, it's for you to receive the mystery of, of God, of the kingdom of God. The mystery of the kingdom of God is revealed to the insiders. So we find a union here between a right confession of Jesus wanting to be with him, and the discipleship. Okay? A right confession of Jesus and discipleship. How am I going to bear that hundredfold fruit? Come close to Jesus. That's how. The parable and the explanation, they don't, they, they, they just tell you, there are some people like this, some like this, some like this, some like this. How am I going to be part of that group? The middle is telling me, if I want the mystery of the kingdom of God to be revealed unto me, when Jesus finishes his parable, goes away, come close to him. Be part of the inside group, the inner group, the inner circle. You have to come close to Jesus. That's how you will bear the fruits. It applies to us too. In verse 20, it says, the, uh, the good ground, those who hear the word and receive it. How? How do we hear the word and receive it? By walking close to Jesus. Walking close to his word. Walking close to him inside our hearts. In our minds. Our whole bodies a living sacrifice. Okay? Next sandwich. Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We're going to um, talk about a ruler of the synagogue. His name is Jarius. And his daughter, who was ill. And that's the story. The story of Jarius, who goes to Jesus, asks him to come heal his daughter. And then his daughter dies, but then Jesus goes and raises her up from the dead. Well, guess what? That's the story. In the middle, Mark inserts... It interrupts that story with a different one who has a disease of blood. She came to Jesus, touched his garment, and was made whole. That story is inserted in the middle. And I know that Mark intends to do that because um, the story about Jairus' daughter, the top and the bottom, if you look at the verbs, they're all in the present tense or imperfect tense. The story in the middle is in the past tense. So there's definitely some, something going on, intentional. Okay? 
without reading every single verse, I'm going to compare the two girls. Both stories are of females healed by the touch of Jesus. Jesus healed and raised the girl from the dead by the touch of Jesus. Both of them are called daughter by Jesus. The woman's illness and the girl's age are both given as 12 years. Is it a coincidence? It says here in the text that the woman was ill with this uh, disease of blood for 12 years. Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. I think Mark is deliberately trying to make a comparison here. Right? In both stories, Jesus is met by rebuke. Verse 17. Verse 17, that's Jairus. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. Okay? Rebuke. Verse 40. Verse 40. And they left him to scorn. They left him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he takes the father, the mother of the damsel, and them that were with him, and enters in where the damsel was lying, and then he raises her up from the dead. He says, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto you, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years. And they were astonished, with a great astonishment. So Jarius's story, his, uh, his daughter, the beginning and the ending. The woman with the, with the blood disease is in the middle. Notice something. In both stories, Jesus is in contact with uncleanness. So Mark is definitely trying to make a contrast here. The woman's blood, blood is considered unclean according to Old Testament laws. And the girl's corpse, because she died, that's also considered to be unclean. Um, so also in the beginning of chapter 5, there's the... Um, There's the man who has a lot of demons in him. He's also unclean. Jesus comes in contact with him. Both stories are completely hopeless. Both of them. The woman spent all her money on doctors for 12 years without any hope. Hopeless. Jairus, he got word that his daughter died. Both stories are completely hopeless. But they find hope in Jesus when all human hope is exhausted. There's nothing they can do, humanly speaking. The only hope was Jesus. Also compared to the, the, the demoniac uh, in the beginning of chapter 5. Lost all hope, but he found hope in Jesus. Okay. Jairus the ruler of the synagogue, and the woman. Okay, we compared both women. We saw that Mark is trying to make a connection. They're very, very similar. Very similar, both women. But Jairus and the woman, complete opposites. Jairus is a man. The woman, of course, she's a woman. Jairus has a name. The woman doesn't. It's not, she's unnamed here. Jairus has a position. The ruler of the synagogue. The woman, the woman does not. He is the leader of the synagogue. The woman's identification is her shame. 
That's the only identification here. Jairus approached Jesus face to face, but the woman approached secretly from behind. Complete opposites. But this is the key. Why Mark is inserting the, the woman in Jairus's story? Because Jairus has status and privilege, but he does not hold an advantage regarding the one thing that mattered the most, which is faith. So in this respect, the roles are reversed. The woman had the faith. Um, see in here, the woman's gender and namelessness and uncleanness and shame and hopelessness did not stop her from reaching Jesus. Verse 34, and he said unto her daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. That's the center. Thy faith hath made thee whole. But look at verse 36. Jarius needed to be told to have faith. He needed to be encouraged to move forward when the situation was hopeless. The situation was hopeless for the woman. She kept moving forward and forward. Let's go to verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word, well, verse 35 for context. While he yet spake, there came the ruler of the synagogue's house, Certain which said, thy daughter is dead. Now Jairus is hopeless, just like the woman was. Twelve years, all the doctors spent all her money. Nothing worked. She still moved forward. Nobody encouraged her. She, she wanted it so bad. She wanted Jesus so bad. That's the example of faith we should have. Do you want Jesus so bad, so bad? They said, thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. He's telling him to believe. His faith is lacking somehow. He knows that Jesus can, can heal her because he went to Jesus. But she was sick. Now she's dead. It's a different story. His faith is lacking now when the situation is completely hopeless. Jesus had to tell him, be not afraid. Just believe. Just believe. So Jairus must have the kind of faith that the woman has. That's the contrast. The, the edges of the story, Jairus, how, how do you understand this? Jairus had to have the faith that the middle, the woman, has expressed. The woman exemplifies and defines faith for Jairus which means to trust Jesus despite the hopeless situation. Uh, faith has no limits, even the raising of a dead child. Faith has no limits. Let's go to another sandwich. There's nine of them. I'm only going to cover five because of time, but you're going to get the idea. And then I'm going to speak briefly on the other four. But, but you can tell now, we covered three sandwiches, so you can tell that the, the theological key is the middle. The middle allows us to understand the story on top and on bottom. In other Gospels, like Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Luke, the same stories are there, but they're not interrupted in the same way Mark is doing it. 
So Mark has a specific theological purpose for doing that. And, um, okay, let's go to chapter six. Um, this one is difficult to, to, to bite into, okay? So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read the edges first. So you're gonna see how it's just a complete story. If, if the middle wasn't there, you wouldn't even know that there's a break in there. So I'm gonna read the edges first, then I'm gonna read the middle, not the whole thing, it's big. But the theological idea is difficult to chew on, it's difficult to swallow. So let me do my best to explain this to you. I know it's controversial, because some people think that when you're a Christian, now God is on your side. Well, that's true, but then life is filled with blessings. Is that true? No. So, the theme here is the mission of the 12. Verses 6 to 13 is the top of the sandwich, and then verse 30 is the bottom. So let me read verses 6 to 13 for you. So, yeah, um, chapter 6, verse 6, from the middle of the verse. And he went round about to the villages, teaching. And he called unto, them, unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth two uh, by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. That's their first mission um, trip. Their first mission trip. And they have miraculous power over unclean spirits. And he sent them, Jesus sent them two by two to witness to the truth, the gospel, the kingdom of God is coming. Repent. And commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey except a staff only uh, and all that. He said unto them in verse 10, In what place soever ye enter into a house, abide ye till ye depart from that place. Whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you, when ye depart thence, Shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Okay? Verse 13. Uh, sorry, verse 12. That's what happened now. Jesus gave them instructions. What happened on their first missionary journey? And they went out and preached that men should repent. Verse 12. Verse 13. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Let me, let me skip to the verse 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Complete story. But you see, I skipped verses 14 to 29. It doesn't seem like it matches. Verses 14 to 29 is the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. Jesus sent the disciples out. It says here, they went out, they preached, they cast out many devils, they, they anointed many with oil and that they were sick, and healed them, and then they gathered themselves together, they came back to Jesus and told him all the things they had done and what they had taught. What does the story of John the Baptist have to do in the, in the middle of this? See, it's really an interruption. Interruption. 
I'm, I wanna, you know the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. I'm not going to read all of that, but I do want to uh, look at verse 18. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. He wasn't afraid of telling him the truth. He wasn't afraid of telling him what's not lawful for him to do according to God's word. What did John get for telling the truth? He was beheaded. What did Jesus send the disciples to do? To preach the truth of the gospel, of the kingdom of God, to preach that men should repent. The middle, again, is the key to understanding the edges. And there's no easy way to say this, but that's the only thing that I get from this. If you want to preach the truth, you will risk, you risk losing your life. That's the lesson here. The relationship between mission and martyrdom, there's a relationship there between discipleship and death. Attested by the 2,000-year history of the church, Martyrs all over the place because of their faith until this very day. Is that what Mark is trying to say? There's, there's, no other ex- there's no other interpretation of this sandwich. Jesus is telling them to go preach the truth. John lost his life for preaching the truth. Therefore, if you want to preach the truth in obedience to our command and master, Jesus Christ, you risk an early death. You risk losing your life. Not very easy for me to to speak that, but that's God's word. Sometimes God's word is sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? As God's people. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, Whoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In Matthew 16, it says, Whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Paul, in Acts 20, says... But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself. He is betwixt two ideas. To stay because they needed him or to leave, which is, he will be with the Lord. In Revelation chapter 12, the martyrs, it says, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Somehow, their death is the victory over Satan through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They're preaching the truth. They lost their lives. But as Christians, someday you have an expiration date. Every one of us. You're going to lose your life anyway. Eternity is what matters. That's what you set your sight on. Do you want to go to eternity early? Let's, let's put it this way. Paul did not know how to answer that. Paul says, I'm, I'm, I don't know, betwixt these two. I, I don't know. I don't know. Let's leave that to God. Let's leave your expiration date, date to God. There is one. But the risk is, if you want to preach the truth, it might come earlier. As a believer, you don't care. 
you don't care. Jesus said in front of Pilate, you don't have power over me except what God gives you, right? Over and over in scriptures, we see the emphasis of eternal life over this one. Over and over, we see the emphasis of God's sovereignty. God is in control of everything, even what they can do to you. Jesus says, don't fear them who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Over and over and over. Matthew chapter 10, verses, I believe, 32, 33, 34, it says, whoever, um, whosoever denies me, in front of men, I will deny him before my Father which is in heaven. So don't deny Christ before men. Preach the truth, even if there's a risk on your life. The world will hate you for it, yes. But Jesus will love you. That's your goal, eternal life, pleasing the Lord. Okay, one more sandwich. Okay, this one is done. Now, chapter 11. Chapter 11. And we're almost done, so just focus with me. Chapter 11. Jesus cursed a tree because it did not bear fruit when it says it's not the season for fruit, and the tree withered. What an innocent tree, right? Let's explain. Let's explain. So I'm going to read again the top and the bottom. Then the middle will give us the explanation of why Jesus cursed that tree. We're not going to be... Has the story of Jesus cursing the tree complete by itself without any interruptions. Okay? Luke um, replaces that with a parable because he has his own theological purpose. But Mark is the only one that takes that story of the tree and puts a story that seems unrelated right in the middle. So I'm going to read the top and the bottom. Chapter 11, verse, let me see, 12. I'm going to read three verses. Verse 12, And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, important, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For the time of figs was not yet. Very important. It had leaves, but there was nothing on it. No fruit, no figs, because the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, he spoke to the tree, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Let's skip to verse 20. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. What did Jesus tell him? Jesus answering saith unto him, Have faith in God. So that's the story. So we need to see why did Jesus curse the tree. Why not make a miracle right there and then to make the tree bear fruit out of season? That would be a nice miracle, right? Why he has to curse it? The only miracle recorded in the Gospels of destruction. Why would Jesus curse an innocent tree that doesn't bear fruit out of season? Well, there's no such thing as an innocent tree. Trees are not living creatures.
creatures according to their biblical description. They don't have a brain, they don't have feelings, they don't breathe, they don't move. Trees are a uh, reproducing source of food, biblically speaking. So there's no such thing as a tree alive, that Jesus killed the tree. Oh, the tree is so innocent. Poor tree. It, it doesn't have any feelings. It's, it's just a source of food. When you eat an apple, you don't kill the apple. So, some find Jesus' actions offensive, right? In the middle. Well, let, let, me, let me explain something about figs, fig trees. The tree, it had leaves. It was seen afar off by Jesus, okay? I'm choosing my words carefully because of the middle story. So that the, it had leaves. It was seen afar off. It was not the season. Why? Because between August and October, the branches sprout buds to eat. They remain undeveloped during the winter. And then during March to April, they swell into green knobs that are edible. They might be bitter, but they're edible. You can eat them. Shortly after that, in April, the leaf buds sprout out on the same branches. So if there is leaves on the branches, there are these small little figs that are not developed yet. They're bitter, but they're edible. Then after that, when it becomes the season for the figs, they grow and they become full figs. So if you see a tree from a distance that has leaves, I'm almost done, you expect there to be certain fruits. In the middle, Jesus' actions in the temple. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem. Jesus went into the temple. He began to cast them out. Again, Jesus destroyed the fig tree. Now Jesus is destroying things in the temple. He overthrew the tables, the money changers. He, he, he is basically what we call he's cleansing the temple. It says, it is not written my house. Is it not written my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. We all know that story. Jesus overturned the tables. Why? Jesus attacked the very commerce upon which the temple religious system is depending on. Jesus attacked the root of the temple as an institution, the thing that makes their money. Um, therefore, the cursing of the fig tree, let me put it this way. When you look at the temple from a distance, wow, magnificent, right? A wonder of the world. When you come closer, when you go inside, you expect to see godliness. You expect to see God working there, right? If that's the temple of God, you come closer, what happens? You find that they are greedy. The widow put two mites in, and none of the priests had the, uh, the audacity to go and give her a meal. To go and tell her, no, here, here's some offering from me. No, 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 they want her two mites and they let her go. Destroyers, Jesus told them, destroyers of widows and orphans. You go inside that temple, it has rotten to the very core. God is not in there. 
their religious leaders are not following their, their God. The temple has rotten to the core. From outside, it appears magnificent. You go there, it has rotten to the core. The fig tree, from the outside, from a distance, it had leaves. It appears like it has fruit. You go there, it has no fruit. The fig tree is symbolizing the temple. If Jesus told the fig tree to bear fruit, I know it's 8 o'clock. If he told her to bear fruit, and that symbolized the temple, Jesus is forcing the temple to bear fruit, but their hearts are far away from him. That's not right. The fig tree had to be cursed, because according to Mark, how, what's the understanding of that fig tree? It's the middle of the sandwich. That temple had to be destroyed. There's no fruit in it. It has the appearance of godliness, but there's no godliness in it. So, that's why it had to be cursed. Then, and out of the temple, one of his disciples said unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. What did Jesus say? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. The temple had to be destroyed, just like the fig tree was. Okay? The veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. This, this means that the, the temple was the means of approach to God. Right now, Jesus is the way to approach God. His own body, the, the temple of his body, will be broken down and raised in three days. A temple that is not made by human hands. That's what it says. In his death, Jesus alone is the is the access of God. Jesus is the access to God. Therefore, the temple is being replaced by Jesus as the center of Israel. And that's why, and here Peter told him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursed, it's withered away. What did Jesus answer? Have faith in God. What does that have to do with fig tree? Everything. Because the fig tree in this example is a symbol of the temple. Is Peter saying the temple is going away, according to Mark here? Peter is not saying that, but according to Mark, that fig tree is the temple. So Mark is telling us our faith is not in that temple. Mark is writing before the temple was destroyed. He's telling us our faith is not in that religious system. That religious system is rotten to the core, and the fig tree withers. Have faith in God. Jesus is our access to God. So I'm going to end here. I'm going to say these are half the sandwiches, almost half the sandwiches, five out of nine. The other four are for the, day, the night and the day of the crucifixion. That tells you something. Mark is putting almost half his sandwiches in one night and one day. And the other half spans three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Chapter 14 has three of these sandwiches, including Peter's denials. Chapter 15 has another one, when Jesus was crucified. And then a centurion, a Roman Gentile centurion, says he is the Son of God, not his own people. Peter's denials. Peter denies him two times. And then there's a story of Jesus 
in front of Ananias, the high priest in the court, and then Peter denies him three times. Peter denies the truth, denies even knowing the truth, while Jesus, the embodiment of the truth, is Ananias. By the way, I like to call him pineapple because um, the Arabic word for pineapple is ananas, and he's Ananias, he's Mr. Pineapple to me. So. <laughs> Amen. I have one question. Who's hungry? Who's going to eat sandwiches tonight? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, what seems to be a short time of opening your words. Um, we need to have more indulgence, more appetite to open your entire words and never stop learning. Never, never stop learning. Uh, we need to have an appetite to go be closer to Jesus so we can learn more, so we can have that hundredfold fruit. May the world outside not look at this church, at this place, as something that they expect godliness inside and they come here and they don't find it. May that never happen. Lord, help us achieve godliness in our hearts in this church by coming closer to Jesus, by having fellowship with him. He is our salvation through his body, broken, three days later, raised from the dead. Lord, we thank you for this time again, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.